Hi Ventures, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In recent years, and especially since the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, it would have been hard for you to notice that most shops, restaurants and other establishments that provide goods and services only accept card now or cashless payments. Now, for most of you, this move might be convenient. You never like carrying cash. You prefer just carrying cards. And no cash means a lesser chance of getting robbed or mugged and other such reasons. However, you might have also noticed there's less cash terminals in your local area. Your local bank or building society branch is closing and there's no one to go to when you've got an issue with your bank except for online and maybe a chatbot. Well, in this episode, I'm checking in with an author and former financial trader who has written a book about some of the sinister moves behind these trends. Brett Scott is the author of Cloud Money, Why the War on Cash Endangers Our Freedom. Brett also has a substack called Altered States of Monetary Consciousness where he explores the frontiers of modern money and in his words, draws pictures of it to help you see our economic system with new eyes. In this episode, we discuss growing up at the tail end of apartheid South Africa as Brett is South African and what it was like navigating that as a white man, a deep dive into cloud money through a mental health lens and his journey from working in left-wing politics as a financial trader and his professional journey to where he is today. For Brett's mental health, we discuss his diagnosis of OCD and the challenges that has brought his mental health from adolescence to adulthood. In February 2022, these OCD symptoms caused Brett to have a mental health breakdown, where he experienced huge anxiety, burnout and at one point, psychotic episodes. All of this overlapped with the writing and publication of Cloud Money and we discuss how he navigated both of these things, how it impacted his mental health and how he overcame it. So this is how my conversation with the brilliant Brett Scott went. Brett, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. I'm really excited to talk about everything in your book in this pod, which is going to be a bit of a mammoth edition, I think. Rest assured, listeners, this is not my descent into conspiracy theories. This is very much an evidence-based book, which Brett has written, just as a disclaimer before we start. How are you, mate, first of all, and how has the response been to the book since its publication? Hey, Brady, good to be here. I'm fine, thank you. It's um, snowing here in Berlin, so it's very cold. And then my apartment's very cold, but I'm good otherwise. Excellent. To be honest, the book came out last year, around May, so I don't always follow how the reception is doing right now. But as far as I know, it's doing fine. Okay. Uh, it's kind of, it's out in nine languages or so, so probably, maybe it's doing really well somewhere in the world, and I just don't know. <laughs> Depends. It's just come out in Russian. Mm. Well, Well, that's success, I guess. For all I know, it's like massively taking off somewhere in Russia right now, but I haven't yet heard about that. You've had a really fascinating journey to bring you to speaking to me today, mate, and some extremely difficult challenges as well, which we're going to talk about. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? 
Sure, yeah. We're going to start your pod by talking about your professional journey, Brett, as it's encompassed quite a few different hats of yours since you uh, went into it. So firstly, tell me about the start and growing up in apartheid South Africa and why that experience made you want to leave and get out of a country that very much feels like a rugby-obsessed but politically troubled bubble from the outside looking in. Yeah, I mean, that's a complex story. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I necessarily explicitly thought of myself as wanting to okay. leave. But, you know, maybe growing up in apartheid was a quite an interesting, troubling experience. I caught the tail end of it, right? But I was, I think apartheid ended when I was maybe like seven or eight years old or something like that. And if you're a white South African, apartheid was always this thing that nobody talks about, right? <laughs> So, yeah, white South Africa in general has this big issue is that, you know, for many, many years, the apartheid system basically protected white power in South Africa, and there's a white minority, right? So there's this whole structure, this sort of authoritarian, basically a fascist authoritarian police state that would protect white capitalists, basically, give them access to cheap labor for the mining industry and all these things. So basically, the white population in South Africa, at some level, benefited from a very militarized police state that would basically give them privileges, right? But lots of people in white South Africa, and bear in mind, the white population in South Africa makes up something like, I think maybe like 8% of the population. Maybe I have a figure wrong. Maybe it's like slightly higher than that. But it's not a big part of the population, but it's a sort of... It was always the most politically dominant during apartheid. So yeah, if you're growing up in white South Africa, you kind of have this, you're, you're in this sort of strange bubble where you're aware that you're constantly surrounded by people who probably view you as an oppressor, but then you have this whole kind of like structure around you to pre- pre- prevent you having to ever think about it. When I was growing up, I was sort of vaguely aware that there was something strange in the environment, something strange about the fact that like black people didn't seem to have anything or like you drive around in a car and you'd see that like black people in South Africa had to walk, right? Um, and there'd be specific areas they had to live in and stuff like that. But as a kid, you don't really, you don't really understand what's going on necessarily other than some vague sense that there's something like weird in the environment. At least for me, that was my feeling, right? But as a kid, you have no real language to express it other than the environment seemed like strange. So I think at some deep level that was that very heavily impacted me because I'm quite like a, Maybe you call it like a sort of sensitive type of like intuitive type of person at some level. And I could sense like a lot of violence in the atmosphere, Mm. but like couldn't pinpoint where exactly it came Mm. from. Right. So you sort of sense this like malevolent violence in the atmosphere all the time, but you don't really know what the source is. And you're also basically like as a white South African, if you have that sense, you're viewed as a threat in white South Africa. You're a kind of a person who can't be trusted, basically, to uphold the oppressive structure. So at some level, I always, at some level, would like feel like a kind of outsider, mm. right? Like my community could turn on me at any moment. Mm. But it's not like Black South Africa offers a yeah. refuge for a person like that, right? So this is a classic problem of like white South Africans who, during apartheid, would sense something wrong. Is that like you're going to be shafted by your own population, but you're also not going to find refuge in the black community. So there's the, the one exit is like some kind of exile where you kind of leave the country to escape the contradiction. Mm. 
So at some level, I didn't ever explicitly think that in my mind, but that probably was like at least some level of what I ended up going off at some point to take on the global financial sector rather than face the contradictions of my own lived environment in South Africa. But it's a very strange experience. If you, if you, you know, in the UK, you'll come across lots of white South Africans who at some level have not quite processed what it means to kind of like be this ambiguous figure in, yeah, in Southern Africa. Mm. You're clearly a very clever man and you studied in South Africa first at university before you got a scholarship to transfer and study at Cambridge and do a master's in anthropology. So what was your experience like in the UK academic system versus South Africa? And what did you learn about yourself before you moved back temporarily to South Africa again? Well, yeah, I mean, the UK has got like the whole class structure. So that was the first thing I noticed. Yeah, in South Africa, the Class distinctions were normally based on race, right? At least during apartheid. It's changed somewhat now in South Africa. There's now more kind of class awareness that goes beyond race. But in, originally in South Africa, it was like, you know, black people were working class yeah. and white people at some level were, you know, in charge. And then there's various other kind of racial designations that were given sort of intermediary levels of power. But in, in the UK, like for the first time I noticed this class structure, which is so pervasive in the society and everybody is constantly thinking about it. But if you're an outsider, you're like kind of unaware of how exactly it works. Unless you're, unless you're talking about really the political talk- discourse, mate, which is largely forgotten class for some reason. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like everyone talking about what school they went to <laughs> and like their accents and like trying to like pretend that they're one class. Yeah, class there's a lot of that. There's this, this constant politics. And like the fact that, for example, on like, you know, popular radio that had these like very deliberately kind of like what seems to be like deliberately working class accents, whereas like on like, you know, Radio 4, these very posh accents. There's always strange like accent politics that took me ages to kind of like get my mm. head around. But especially going into Cambridge, where, you know, I got the scholarship to go there for a master's degree. And suddenly yeah, I was just like, wow, there's a whole crazy world of like this sort of Cambridge, is, I guess, one of the heights of you know, the, the establishment in the UK. And although as an international student going in in the postgraduate scene, all that class stuff is less present because lots of the postgraduate scene in Cambridge is actually quite international. Mm. So there's lots of international students. But the undergraduates in Cambridge, that was like a whole other world, right? There's all these people going in who've been prepping for like years and years and years to get into the, these big elite institutions. It seemed like they were really stressed out compared to like my South African university. Nobody in South Africa perceives themselves as like global elites, right? So when you go to university, you don't perceive yourself as being like the future leader of a country. Whereas I sensed like people going to Cambridge were all like supposed to, they've kind of been trained to think of themselves as like elites. And that was really what Cambridge offered, was like how to imagine yourself as a person who's going to like run mm. things. Because the actual level of education wasn't necessarily like better than, say, like my university in South Africa, but it was the whole like atmosphere, the whole like cultivating this this, this elite identity, which was super important in Cambridge. And then all the sort of ritualistic stuff they did, like the sort of Harry Potter, you know, high table meals and stuff that they'd create, and so that was really fascinating. But I also became aware of the financial sector there because the financial sector hovers around Cambridge trying to like basically harvest all the students and so that's where i first became interested in like how does this like global financial system like comes in and cultivates this identity for the students be like okay you're an elite you should come and work for goldman sachs you should be with us and like um i became very sort of darkly fascinated about that because i always had a kind of 
at least in university and when I was maybe 20, 21, 22 and so on, so I developed like a left-wing identity, right? Like a sense of like, you know, which comes out of the sort of like South African context, quite a, like an, an anarchisty sort of way of thinking. But I became very interested in like, what is this crazy like power structure in the UK with the global financial system, which seems to like hover around London. And so I started to become aware that London was this like massive sort of center of global power, in particular, one of the world's biggest financial centers. And so, yeah, that's kind of like where I got introduced to that and went back to South Africa after university. And then I I'd studied international development, which was sort of typically something that leads you towards, you know, working in the UN um, NGOs <laughs> or yeah, the UN is kind of stuff. And I was not really like actually that I was a bit, uh, it didn't actually appeal to me that much, but I basically came across this idea, which was like, I had studied anthropology as well and an under, undergraduate and it led me to this idea of using my anthropological background and critical background, to sort of go into the financial sector and start to explore it in a kind of adventurous way. I can delve deeper into it. Yeah, well, let's talk about it now. So let's fast forward to 2008. It's at this point, and it's the year of the global financial crash, which was driven by the collapse of banks like Northern Rock and Lehman Brothers, and the uh, scourge of subprime mortgages as made famous by the film The Big Short. So you said your choice to go into finance jarred with other people's perceptions of you as you were kind of seen externally, maybe not internally, but you were seen externally as a maybe a more bohemian or liberal type. Did you care about their opinion before you made this choice or was it a rebellion against that perception? No. Yeah, bear in mind the work I've been doing before going to the financial sector was stuff like, you know, working for research institutes on like, you know, for example, the privatization of healthcare in East Africa. And you know, the sort of politics of privatizing the health infrastructure. So this is the kind of stuff you do if you've, if you've studied like international development at a university. But I had this sort of like sense, I was like, you know, I'm, I kind of, I talk about like global financial flows and stuff, but I don't have any like intuitive embodied experience of what that even means. Who are these like players that are like pushing money in towards like buying out hospital infrastructure in East Africa and some private equity fund that's based somewhere else in the world. You know, so, that, so I became interested in like, who are these like powerful players that we talk about when you're doing sort of critique of economic systems. And so basically around sort of 2000 and yeah, in 2008, I kind of embarked on this. I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to totally reject my identity as a kind of alternative bohemian kind of person in a way. And I've been playing in like bands and I was like in these sort of like slightly like hippie crews, but also quite like left wing, quite like Marxist. Sounds like my university of Sussex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sussex University would be a good example of, you know, but this is the South African version of that as well. So it also has diverse like South African types of left wing politics. But I was actually like, what's the most interesting thing I can do in terms of challenging myself in a way, you know, and, and, and part of that is like doing the opposite thing that you, everyone thinks you should do. All right. So like doing the thing that makes you afraid or doing the thing that kind of like pushes you out of your comfort zone. And to me, this is like an emerge is like, wouldn't it be like kind of hilarious or bizarre or just like kind of like totally absurd if I went and worked in the financial sector or tried to, and I became very captivated by this idea. Not only because I could maybe like learn things, but just would be just the, the sheer kind of like absurdity of the adventure. Behind enemy lines, you probably thought. 
No, no, I didn't even think that. No, it was more just like, this is so weird. I liked the absurdity of it. I wasn't really perceiving myself to be like, you know, going undercover or something. It was more just like gonzo, actually. Mm. So there's a distinction in like journalism between like investigative journalism and gonzo journalism. Like investigative journalists will do stuff where they like try to go behind right. me. Like they'll try to infiltrate and discover something like intellectual almost. Whereas like gonzo journalism is much more like you want to experience the emotion of something. You want to feel something. What is it actually like? to be a member of the Hells Angels, right? Whereas an investigative journalist would be like, let me expose what the Hells Angels do, right? The Gonzo journalist is like, what does it feel like to ride down the highway with a bunch of these like characters in the middle of America? So, that, that, yeah, so, so, so I was more in the Gonzo tradition, which is like, what does it feel like to be immersed in like, the center of global power in a financial institution? What is it like to be in the offices of like a big, massive, pension fund that's making decisions that are going to like fund huge things and so on so that's kind of what drove me actually towards the the financial adventure and i became very captivated by this whole thing and this is partly related to my anthropological background because anthropology has more of that gonzo feeling to it throughout like you're sort of going in to experience things so and that's why I, I went to london and i kind of like tried to get jobs in the midst of the financial crisis mm -hmm. so i went to a bunch of interviews with all these crazy different companies and trading firms and stuff and I didn't know what I was doing at all, but I, I kind of like learned while I was doing it. And there was a whole kind of crazy adventure in itself trying to find a job. But yeah, I actually ended up getting interviewed by Lehman Brothers twice just before they went bust. <laughs> that was we, bullet dodged. Yeah, exactly. Like, so that, yeah, they, were, they were hiring for like people for their, their like hedge fund brokerage divisions and stuff. And so I was in their offices literally weeks before they went down. Wow. Um, Whoever got that job literally arrived at work and then was fired. Immediately. <laughs> I thought you were about to say the desk was on fire because that would have been more apt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I ended up getting employed by this like slightly crazy like startup brokerage firm called Hall Capital Markets. And uh, they were like these, all these like guys from previous other companies who had left or whatever, like former traders of big like, you know, big banks and stuff who wanted to start their own company. And so... I ended up with this sort of crazy crew of these traders and brokers who wanted to create their own brokerage and they're pretty incompetent or they had no idea how to run a company. So it was a very crazy experience because it was like a, it was like a very badly run cowboy operation brokerage. Mm. <laughs> That's what I did for two years in the midst of the financial crisis. I want to move on to your excellent book, Cloud Money, now, mate. So tell me first where the origin of the idea for the book came from and the inspiration for it first, as it came from another shorter book you wrote prior to it, if I'm right in saying. Yeah, after I left the financial sector, I, you know, after about, I only worked in the financial sector for about two years. You know, I gained, you know, a bunch of kind of like, a, let's say, embodied knowledge about finance. But I also came from this activist background. So I ended up being like commissioned by this left-wing publisher in the UK called Pluto Press who wanted me to write a kind of guide to finance for activists. I produced originally my first book, The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money, which came out in 2013, just after the Occupy Wall Street protests, right? So I was kind of like hanging around those sort of scenes. And at that time, I had this kind of like persona as like the left-wing finance guy. Right. So I could be like the stereotypes you know, returned. <laughs> yeah. So some kind of like, you know, if you're working on a campaign against the financial sector and you needed somebody to like some kind of like mercenary figure to help you on the campaign, that would be like, guy. <laughs> yeah. So and I designed 
the Heretics Guide to Global Finance was all basically a guide to civil society for like how you take on the financial sector, you know, how you understand it, but also how you try to like rewire it. And I was talking quite a lot about there about alternative forms of finance. So like non-mainstream forms of finance, you know, basically like, you know, how do you sort of take on the financial sector? And it just so happens at that time, around that time, the tech sector was also had a self-image of being some disruptive force in society that we're going to like take on the financial sector. So bear in mind during the financial crisis, like the banks and the finance companies were the bad guys, right? Whereas all the tech firms like Google and stuff, they were trying to like cultivate this image of being like the kind of the good guys. They were like, you know, are we just geeky kind of hackers? We just sort of help society and stuff. How the tables have turned, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, and, and so the fintech scene, so the financial technology mm. scene kind of like traded on this idea that they were somehow like a sort of revolutionary uprising against finance, right? So this is why I started getting dragged into that scene because I'd done a book about, you know, sort of hacking the financial sector. A lot of people in the sort of tech scene started being like, oh, you're a kind of guy who's a bit like us, comes to our hackathons and, you know, we're doing fintech. It's going to democratize finance, right? They had this whole sort the of- The fox self- was invited into the hen house. <laughs> yeah, whole, yeah, so this whole kind of like- self-image of being these like disruptive heroes right which is very silicon valley right Mm. and so i started getting drawn into the sort of intersection between tech and finance but it became very clear to me that like the fintech sector wasn't trying to like disrupt finance it was just trying to automate finance right which is a different thing they wanted to take anything in finance that wasn't automated and just automate it you could sort of superficially call that democratization if you wanted to because if you automate things you you basically cut their costs which under certain types of profit models mean if you cut costs, you can sort of serve more people. But this was the whole sort of basis of their claim to democratizing the financial sector. It was you'd be like, traditionally, a bank doesn't find it profitable enough to serve a poorer person. So if we automate it and make a robot that does finance, it'll be under like a profit model. It'll make more sense to serve poorer people or absorb them into the systems. And this is basically like a whole fintech thing, which is just like automate everything and thereby like spread the power of finance via that process. So I became aware of those dynamics of how the tech sector and the finance sector were starting to intersect via fintech. And so I started writing a lot more about that. And that's what's led up to cloud money. So cloud money is basically about the intersection between big finance and big tech. And how that originally started as a a story of revolution and disruption, but really what it is, is a kind of fusion between those two powers, right? Mm. Which you've seen over the last 10 years, all the massive digital players, they become the biggest companies in the world, but they all totally depend upon digital finance architectures, Mm. right? So these like massive companies like Amazon and stuff are totally integrated into the global financial system. I mean, if you're in London, for example, you'll start to see that all the Amazon fresh retail stores have started. Those stores literally cannot operate unless they're plugged into global finance architectures. They're totally dependent upon being on the fintech infrastructures. So there's a basically a fusion between those two players. But in particular, I'm also interested uh, from like my money side about how this was manifesting in society as a cultural attack against the cash system, the physical cash system. If you look at like global capitalism, what it does, it's always trying to expand and accelerate right? At any one point in time, there'll be certain things that are standing in the way of that, all right? And right now, physical cash stands in the way of that. Mm. So if you want to look culturally why you see a society starting to like supposedly express a 
quote-unquote preference for digital payment, like what's going on is that at a systemic level, there's pressure to accelerate, all right? So it's leading to this attack on the cash system. So cloud money is interesting because I come at this, the question of cashless society from basically a kind of structural, systemic left-wing perspective, saying the reason why people are internalizing this belief that cash is on its way out is that the power structure of the global economy, players like Amazon and the banking sector, they hate the cash system, right? Whereas the typical story that was, it's always been told about cashless society is that the reason why it happens is that everybody just desires this. Right. Everybody desires automation. Everybody desires all the stuff to happen. So I'm kind of like going against that narrative. And also there's a whole conspiracy narrative that also goes around around cashless society, which I always have to kind of avoid as well. So mm. um, we, we can go into that. But that's, yeah. that's, that's a kind of newer development that's, that's happened in the last couple of years. You traveled a lot from 2013 to 2017 and experienced a lot of different alternative economic environments, which led to writing Cloud Money. And as you said, the book revolves around the world's move to a, quote, cashless society. So first of all, can you explain what that is to the listeners who might not have a clue about it and how, in your words, cash protects privacy? Well, cash protects more than privacy. But yeah, I mean, a cashless society is basically a society where you can't interact with anybody else unless you go via the banking sector. It's a society where your entire monetary system is essentially privatized to the point where you, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's worth bearing in mind, you know, when a person talks about, you know, the British pound, for example, they imagine that the British pound is a single thing. The British pound isn't a single thing. The British pound is an ecosystem of currencies that all have the same name. Mm. All right. And there are layers to that ecosystem. There's a sort of central, like a core to it. Let's say like a kind of the center of gravity, maybe. But then there's all these other types of layers around it. So the, the, the center of the monetary system or the core, or the, the center of gravity is the nation state, right? The first layer of money in our society comes from the nation state, particularly the central bank and the treasury in the case of the UK, right? And they issue out what you call the pound, which to us in the public is physical cash. But then there's a massive, much bigger part of the monetary system, which is the second layer, which is the commercial banking sector. Barclays, HSBC, Santander. People historically would try to imagine that what those entities do is store your money. Right? They don't do that. Those entities issue money. All right? And the best way to understand that is to Think about the metaphor of a casino and casino chips, right? So if I go into a casino and I hand over physical cash to the casino, they're not storing it for me. <laughs> they're going to take it from me, right? They take ownership. And what do they give to me? They push out casino chips to me. So the casino chips is what I will now control and own in the casino, whereas they've taken ownership of that first type of money from me. They've pushed out a second type of money, which is privately issued by the casino, all right? And actually, the banking sector does a very similar thing. So if you're ever looking at your bank account, you look at those numbers there in your bank account, you might say, oh, that's my money that I put into the bank. It's not true. That's the money that they've pushed out to you as digital casino chips. So the banking sector basically takes people's state-issued money, as it were, and pushes out a second layer of digital casino chips that they also call the pound. And so what you refer to as the cashless society is basically a society where you become totally dependent 
upon privately issued digital casino chips issued out by Barclays, HSBC, Santander, all these big players, right? You're beholden to them, yeah. Yeah, and so you're using this type of money that they've issued, which actually then in turn creates a whole bunch of other features. It gives them massive amounts of power, but it also gives Mm. them massive amounts of data, fees, all sorts of stuff that they get from this process, right? And if you go to a place like London right now, that's where the, the place in the UK that I spend most, you know, when I'm, when I'm visiting there, that's where I tend to go, you'll see that whole sections of the city have now become basically fiefdoms of the banking sector. You actually cannot survive as an individual unless you have your Visa and MasterCard card there. So the whole kind of like payments oligopoly, which is this whole conglomeration of banking players, card companies like Visa and MasterCard, big tech companies like Google and Apple, they basically now stand between you and your ability to survive, all right? So it grants them an enormous amount of structural power in an economy. And previously, the physical cash system was the one counterpower to that. It was the one thing that prevented total control by that oligopoly of players. So when you're looking at the politics of what's called cashless society, when the cash system is removed, trying to protect cash is the act of trying to protect that balance of power in your society, all right, Mm. between the sort of public form of money and the private form of money. This is why I will often call cash the public bicycle of payments (laughs) and contrast it to the private Uber of payments, which is those... So-called yeah. cashless system. I don't think and you're I, calling it a Boris bike, though, anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's... <laughs> well, something you can be with the mountain bike of payments, right? Yeah, there we go. Mountain bike of payments. So, so Not it's, the Brompton. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, but it's an interesting way. So the transport metaphors are useful because actually most people would understand in a transport system, you would want to keep a balance of power between the different players, right? You say, hey, Mina, maybe sometimes I use Uber. But that doesn't mean I want Uber to be the only means of transport in the society. I also like using my mountain bike or my Brompton or my Boris bike. You know, <laughs> we need bicycle lanes in order for that to happen, right? And things like, you know, bicycle lanes were actually a political project that people had to actually fight for. Yes. And right yeah. now in the monetary system, it's a similar situation. The private Uber or payments is totally like taking over in places like London. And there needs to be a cultural pushback to say we demand to have the mountain bike of payments as an option too. Yeah, and when you think about it, that's almost a conservative argument because the conservative principle is around the free market, but also fair competition. And at the moment, what you're arguing is that we don't have fair competition in the cash system. I mean, it's, it's like whether it's a conservative, that, I mean, conservative, I'm just argument, yeah. a conservative <laughs> argument or not, I would say actually the conservative element would actually be something more like and so a certain type of conservatism would argue against yes, a, t- a type of conservatism, I'm, certain I should styles of progress that, yeah. narratives, right? I wouldn't say it's a free market thing because like actually one of the big things about so-called free markets, which don't really exist anyway, right? That's, it's, yeah. a, it's an ideological construct. Free markets are, are a fantasy. It's like the unicorn, right? It's like you, it's, it's something that's spoken about that's never, but it's never seen and it's sort of invoked as a kind of like societal ideal. But of course, markets are totally built upon state infrastructure and always have been. All right, at least in their modern form, you know, and, and under the hypothetical free market scenario, supposedly all there's a competition. In reality, what actually happens in markets is concentration of power. Yeah, sure. Right? Which yeah. is what's happening. So actually many conservatives, especially market conservatives, are actually very anti-pro-cash stuff because they say, oh. well, the market is deciding that we want only digital. Don't stand in the way of the market. Right. So actually so they would most- say that the pro-cash is Luddite-ish. 
Well, they would not only say that, they'd say that you're anti-market. You're going against right. what the public wants, right? Be- because in free, a lot of free market thought is deliberately designed to avoid thinking about power. You present a market as if it were a place of neutral power and equal yes, power, yeah. when in reality, markets are not like that, right? It's in not reality, yeah. Apple and the banking sector and people will like basically crush your decisions on a free market and get their decisions to win out. And right, right now, you'll see that in London, the, quote, unquote, the free market is deciding to destroy the cash system. So actually, you need strong action against that. And actually, bear in mind that also cashless society is a privatization, right? So when you're trying to protect the cash system, you're trying to protect a public infrastructure or a public utility. So actually, the conservative element of the argument is more around there are certain brands of conservatism that actually are anti-standard progress narratives believing that there should be some kind of more traditional values around. And I think what's actually happening in our society right now, I personally wouldn't call it conservative, actually, is there is increasingly a growing movement that says we're told that we should want endless digital acceleration, but actually it's making us sick, mm. right? It's actually like we're addicted to these like digital infrastructures and we keep on being told that this is what progress means. But actually progress should be defined differently progress should be a more balanced thing so actually we demand other types of values in society to be appreciated so for example you could place the pro-cash movement under that saying we're told that all we want is endless speed and convenience but in reality i actually want physical connection i also want human scale systems rather than gigantic automated infrastructures run by like a person in california a common theme throughout the book is how you based on your degree in anthropology, anthropomorphize the banking system itself. And the first example is, or the best example, I should say, is how you describe corporations as living entities. Can you just unpack that for me? Yeah, I mean, this is not unique to me. This is There's a long tradition in forms of critical political economy thought that will talk about corporations as having a kind of logic that extends beyond the people who control them, technically. So... I don't know how, how well I can unpack that right now, but like... Okay, uh, <laughs> we, can, we can potentially move on if you want. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I've got right? a lot to talk about. <laughs> let's put it... Let me, let me lay out the, like, the basic styles of thought. Okay, a very banal mainstream thought in society when they're describing something. Well, people, the power will always be ascribed to individuals. So if you ever hang out at a mainstream conference, let's say a fintech conference, they'll say something like, oh, consumers want digitization. Consumers want these apps. So they basically will always imagine that they'll claim that the agency in society resides in the small person on the street. We as corporations, we only do things because people demand that we do these things for them. So we're mere passive servants serving society. So that's the kind of like banal mainstream narrative. Then you have the activist narrative, which says corporations have insane levels of power and they actually dominate. And they'll often imagine that, that the executives in a corporation are the ones that have that power. So like the executives and the shareholders are trying to push their systems onto us, right? So there's this top-down power being projected. You know, Amazon is a domineering player that like controls our lives, right? So that's a sort of second style of thinking. But there's a third style of thinking, which is to say, even corporations themselves don't fully have control of what they're doing. And if you look at the sort of, if you zoom out and look at the whole kind of structure of the global economy, there's an almost evolutionary type of process whereby if you're an executive of a corporation and you don't attempt to win market power, you will almost be like in an almost evolutionary sense destroyed. 
So even executives or companies don't perceive themselves to have agency. And so this is where you get this idea that there's this kind of like almost inhuman realm in global capitalism where nobody's actually in control. All right. There's actually just gigantic systemic forces. And that while it might seem like the shareholders and the, and the CEOs are the ones who are controlling these companies, in reality, they themselves are just like avatars for inhuman forces that they do not control. In some circles, goes under the name of accelerationism. If you ever like, hang around certain types of left-wing circles, they'll speak about capital, almost like it was a, a living entity. What they're basically saying is that there are systemic forces in our economic system that people just can't control. We've unleashed a kind of Pandora's box. Yeah. And this is where you start to imagine these corporate entities have their own kind of weird like agendas and, and life force in a sense, right? Mm. I fluctuate because I also have like an activist side which believes you, you can control things in the global economy. But it's also important to realize that there's so much stuff happening in our economy that really nobody's in control of. We've still got a mountain to talk about. So I want to move on to something which you spoke about earlier in the pod, which was about the cashless society's impact on poor people. So for me, the most important part of the book and most interesting is how this has affected local communities and people's access to finance in their own lives. So the first example of this is the decline of local bank branches. So just tell me and the listeners why these have closed in recent years. What are the perhaps the numbers on it? And what implications do their loss have on that community, first of all, and more broadly, human connection? Yeah, but I mean, again, if you want to put it into broad context, the global capitalist system always wants to expand and accelerate. One of the main ways you do that is you automate things. So for the banks, when they're making decisions to cut their branches or remove their ATMs, for them, it's a simple calculation. They're like, it's cheaper for us to force mm. people to use apps than to serve them with physical infrastructure. Because it costs like 300 grand or 400 grand a year. To yeah, yeah. That so for them, it's a simple, open, yeah. for them, it's a simple business decision, right? And they have to basically slowly wean you off that culturally, right? The decision's already made. The decision's made long time ago. Their main issue is how do you slowly get people to accept that decision and slowly go towards this? I mean, one of the most amazing examples of this in the UK is you see these adverts from Nationwide where they say, I, I see it every single time I go to the UK, they're like, we will still have bank branches. And then there's a like, small print yes. at the bottom for the next three years. <laughs> yeah, I see right? that, yeah. And it's like, they've made the decision. They've already decided that they're going to shut down all their physical infrastructure and basically push you onto apps. But they have to slowly like pretend that they care whether or not you want that. And this is like standard practice throughout the industry. Okay, so this is like, all these individual decisions being made by these banks to shut down the infrastructure. But bear in mind the big picture, which is that for them, as these like entities competing on global capitalist markets, they perceive themselves as having to automate everything. And if they don't, they imagine they'll be outcompeted. But how that manifests at a local level is it'll create all these feedback loops, right? So like you're in a small town and the bank decides, you know what, it's not profitable enough for us to give you physical infrastructure. They just cut it. They know that there's not enough political clout in that small town for people to do anything about it. And you're just going to have to accept it. And because the banking sector is an oligopoly that's not really subject to competition, you don't have an alternative, right? You can't go to another bank that's going to do like somehow serve you better. So people just accept it and people just shift to the apps. And if they can't, they basically get excluded. If they're forced to somehow like travel to the next town or something to mm. go to a branch, right? Well, for older people, especially ones who aren't good with their phones, it can potentially just make them feel excluded altogether. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what that'll also do is basically once you remove a bank branch from a small town, it basically means if you're a small business, you can't go and deposit cash. 
So it means it's going to basically force the small businesses to quote unquote, go cashless. That in turn, people in the high street of, the, of that town will see that you actually can't even use cash at a bunch of the places. That'll culturally signal to them that there's something unacceptable about cash. They'll mm. basically edit their memories and their cultural expectations to start to basically say there's something wrong with the cash system. We have to change. We have to be to do this stuff. If we don't, we're somehow something wrong with us, right? It'll also create like a reactionary backlash from people who are being like, you know, they're taking away our money and stuff. And players like UKIP will very clearly exploit that backlash, which they're very successfully doing right now. And this is something, for example, the UK Labour Party has been really weak on, was actually capitalizing on the fact that these giant corporations are automating for their own personal interests, shafting over communities in the process. And this would be like, like as a Labour politician, that would have been an amazing thing to like respond to. to say, Actually, I think they have infanished them in recent months. There in was recent a, months, they yeah, have. They, they, was they, a, they, yeah. they were very, very slow. Like UKIP was, yeah. way, oh, was on this way before Labour was. In recent months, in recent times, Labour's starting to catch on very slowly. I have seen policies about trying to make these government-funded like branches to get yeah. Yeah, people But the most, the most important thing is to look at how, the, how all the feedback loops work. Sure. Right? Because, yeah, yeah. because what will happen is that people will basically be forced or nudged increasingly towards digital infrastructures. But then what the banks do is that they use the resultant uptick in statistical digital payments to justify further closing down the cash infrastructure. They'll say, oh, well, people are turning towards digital structures. That means they don't want the banks. So let's shut down more banks, which of course creates that feedback loop. It creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. It makes it harder to use cash, which of course pushes people to the digital systems, which they then use to justify closing down more cash infrastructure. And mm. this is amazing to see that action in the UK because it's so blatant to me, like how they're literally just engineering that cashlessness, right? That dependence upon the bank and tech infrastructure. And that's creating huge exclusion problems. But the problem is, is that what actually ends up happening in the, the UK political landscape is when you talk about exclusion, rather than the government saying, we need to push back and create counterpower to the banking sector to say we should protect the cash infrastructure. They say, oh, what we need to do is to help people get on board into the banks through financial inclusion projects. So actually, the banking sector perversely gets assistance from the state. This kind of, this is kind of like a very like neoliberal situation where the state ends up actually like trying to do financial inclusion programs where they'll try and help elderly people to like get absorbed into Barclays and Visa and MasterCard rather than mm. saying we're going to protect the cash system and the branch system. So it's a very, very bad problem in the UK right now. In the UK at the moment as well, in recent years, the cost of living crisis has been fueled by quite high inflation and then has been countered that with interest rates being increased. The reason that interest rates are normally increased is to try and stop people spending as much, which therefore tends to bring down inflation. Now, one thing that I've noticed is that behaviorally, I'm more inclined to spend cash on a night out versus card because the physical act of handing over cash feels more significant. And yeah. you know, maybe because I'm a bit of a tightwad, perhaps triggers a better semblance of control than yeah. just tapping a card, which doesn't feel as real. Hence why we spend more when we spend on cash, especially if we're um, on card, sorry, especially when we've had a few drinks. Yeah. So this benefits the businesses, of course, but it feels like in this scenario, they are the only winners here, not the consumer. Yeah, Would yeah. you agree with that? Yeah. Bear in mind, what's happened in the UK especially is that there's an alliance has formed between certain parts of the small business community 
and big finance and big tech. So any of those businesses that you see who say we've gone cashless, right? What they're basically saying is that if you want to interact with us, you have to interact with the oligopoly of big tech, big finance players. You cannot interact with us unless you are also on board with those guys, right? And actually, there's a whole sort of structure behind this. Players like Visa, bear in mind, Visa and MasterCard, what they do, earlier I characterized that sort of bank money as being digital casino chips. Visa and MasterCard basically specialize in telling the banking sector which of their customers is trying to move digital casino chips to which of the other customers, right? Brett's trying to pay Freddie somewhere in a, in a bar. Move chips between his account to Freddie's account, right? That's what Visa and MasterCard do. Their entire business model depends upon attacking the cash system. And yeah, for these guys, they've long engaged in this big kind of like campaign against, against the cash system, right? And, and trying to like reduce public access to cash. But they've managed to get on board a bunch of these like small businesses because one of the ways they promote themselves is they, they tell the small businesses, and you can actually go into Visa's benefits of going cashless website and you'll see this. They say, if you go cashless, people will spend more money because psychologically people struggle to understand the movement of digital money. Whereas they understand the move because we're a tactile physical beings, we understand when a banknote is leaving our hand. Yeah. Actually, there's a tactile connection. And this goes beyond cash, right? This is like also, for example, like writing with pens has a different psychological effect to typing something out. There's a whole bunch of this sort of interaction between mind body. And so in the realm of money, Visa estimates that people spend between 20 to 40% more on digital payments than with cash, right? Because there's this like psychological friction associated with cash. And bear in mind, zooming out again, if you're living in a global economy that specializes in promoting endless growth and expansion and acceleration, trying to get people to spend more is ingrained in the very structure of our system, right? So of course, there's a push towards digital payment because it accelerates spending. It accelerates consumption, right? But if you're in a poorer community or if you have mental health difficulties of various sorts, actually being pushed towards that state of accelerated spending is not a good thing. It creates indebtedness, for example. And there are various charities who are very concerned about the fact that like, once you push people onto these digital systems, their ability to actually understand what they're spending goes down. Even in London recently, you know, I, I drew out cash. I could very quickly tell when it ended. You can budget a lot easier with cash because yes. you, can, you can see how much you've gone through. Whereas the digital payments, you have no concept of how much you've spent. It's very quickly. Just well, and there's smaller and fewer bank terminals to even access cash now. Exactly. Well, that's the feedback loops that I was mentioning yes, earlier. Yeah. It starts to feed itself. The war on cash, as you put it in the book, has, has spread its tentacles far and wide. And when it comes to stats, what I found surprising is that cash usage globally is not going down and it, it remains pretty strong. And a really important phrase I think you use in the book is cash doesn't crash, which refers to the stability cash provides in the event of a natural disaster or emergency, a financial fail safe, if you will. Now, if we lose that, what happens in these countries which are more prone to, say, natural disasters, even somewhere like the United States, which is very prone in some states to uh, natural disasters, when the Wi-Fi goes down or the power lines go down and their phones no longer become the key holders to their bank and their money? Yeah, well, actually, some of the people who are the most concerned about cash or society are actually like national security people, right? They're aware. It's like, imagine in the UK, like everyone's sort of like, at least in the sort of upper middle classes and middle classes, tapping away on their cards, you know, being like, ooh, look at, look at us being part of the modern society. That presents a massive vector for like, say, cyber attacks. Mm. 
It's just like, whoa, if, if you're a, a terrorism professional or like, or like a person who's interested in like counter counterterrorism, it's just like the most obvious thing to attack in the UK would be its payments infrastructure. Basically shut down the entire economy, just like that. So these kind of people who have, who have to, for their living, think about resilience are very concerned about cashless society, right? But of course, banking sector and Visa and MasterCard are not going to spend any time showcasing those kind of things, right? But yeah, there's a whole sort of class of risks that play out if you end up with cash being removed. But the most important thing to bear in mind is that actually cash remains very widely used across the globe. It's mm-hmm. still like the most popular form of payment, right? Ideologically, though, it's presented as if it's totally on its way out, right? So this is what's an, it's important to make a distinction between the anti-cash ideology versus the reality. The reality is in most countries, there's still high cash usage, right? But the other reality is that Almost every country, there's anti-cash ideology. Now, the reason why there's anti-cash ideology is that we all live in a global capitalist system that prioritizes acceleration and expansion. And right now, the cash system stands against that. Okay, So even in places like South Africa, where I'm from, which doesn't have electricity for six hours a day sometimes, you'll still find politicians say stuff like, well, we have to move to a cashless society. It's like, well, why are you saying that? It's because it's coming from Silicon Valley. It's coming from the centers of power. That's where that narrative emerges from. And they have to sort of parrot that narrative, even though at a practical level, it makes zero sense in South Africa. Okay. At a practical level, you better have cash in South Africa. Otherwise, nobody can rely upon the electricity infrastructure. There's a big difference here between the rhetoric and the reality. And the reality is that actually cash in many places is quite strong. But there is this force in the global economy, especially in places like London and big like, you know, Western countries that's about like trying to demonize it and take it down. One of the biggest elements of the pro-cash movement is to actually point out how digital rhetoric and digital hype is so short-sighted. We're told that, you know, we're all going to become like digital AI super being. It's so like unhinged and like well, Elon Musk said that, didn't he? He said we're all uh, androids. <laughs> so detached from the reality of most people's lives in the world. It's the kind of thing that you can only imagine if you're like sitting in the center of global power. If someone says they keep cash in their home, most of the time people will assume that they're either hugely paranoid about their respective government or they might be engaging in criminal activity, you know, the stereotype of keeping a big bag of cash under your bed. Now, anti-cash crusaders, as you put it, also make these kind of claims. So is this based in any form of reality or is it just a form of classism on working class people? That's a combination of those things. Bear in mind that like there's a big connection between class and criminality, right? I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, in the UK, think about like, um, I don't know if this is the best example, but like old comedy series, like uh, what's it? Was it Only Fools and Horses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Cash Under the Bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about this. You have like you have sort of working class populations who often don't actually feel like they're represented by the powers that be, who like come from Eton and stuff. And they are also the ones that are associated with criminality, right? Like the black market and the kind of like the sort of informal parts of the economy. It's like, well, yeah, of course, this is the case, right? There's always a connection between economic marginalization and what opportunities you have in a society and the likeliness of you having to rely upon slightly dodgy or like black market activities. So whenever you have these sort of sanctimonious people who come around being like, oh, cash is the realm of crime. It's like, yeah, well, cash is also the realm of people who are marginalized from your society, right? It's the thing that protects people who otherwise, you know, don't perceive that the banking elites represent their interests. 
So there's a big connection here. And so I, I really hate the kind of sanctimonious narratives around, oh, cash is used for like tax avoidance and these kind of things. It's like, yeah, maybe it is, right? Maybe a percentage of it is used for that. But bear in mind, many people who are doing tax avoidance are often small scale players who don't have access to like giant offshore structures that the like Barclays Bank is using to do like mass scale tax avoidance in a legitimized form. We have these like double standards constantly, right? And think about what people say about this. They're basically saying, the anti-cash crusaders, they basically say it is better for us to like force all like to say small trades people in the UK to use Apple Pay so that you can trace all their payments to check that they're not doing tax avoidance. But you call that surveillance capitalism, don't you? Yeah, that would be yeah. A part of surveillance capitalism. Right. Now now you're forcing all these people, you're pushing them into, into basically like sort of Apple's ecosystem, Apple in the banking sector. Apple is the world's worst perpetrator, <laughs> one of the world's worst perpetrators of mass scale tax avoidance. So basically they're saying, enrich this gigantic corporation so that we can clamp down upon small scale forms of tax avoidance you know, amongst like small tradespeople. It's better to allow Apple to have its gigantic offshore structures where it does the tax avoidance instead, right? And this is the kind of like crap that you hear coming out of the sort of anti-cash crew. And the, the reality is, is that like, yeah, the global economy has a bunch of crime in it, right? It doesn't only reside in the realm of like the cash economy. It resides everywhere. It resides in the banking sector, which runs the digital payment systems. It resides over the entire offshore structures, right, which all use the digital payment systems. So, yeah, I'm kind of ranting a bit here. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, Don't worry, mate. It's good. I, I like this conversation. Yeah, yeah. The, some of this sanctimonious narrative around cash and crime is, is total crap, right? And bear in mind, the vast majority of people who use cash are just like, ordinary people who are doing legitimate business, right? But even if there is some criminal element, it doesn't mean that you get rid of this, the system, right? Mm. One thing that you write about which has emerged is this co-opting of language, which has been used around topics like mental health awareness to drive a cashless agenda. So things like cash-free and proud to co-opt inclusivity language and almost make it sound like someone's coming out story. Can you just give me some examples of this? Because, you know, someone like controversial US presidential candidate now Vivek Ramaswamy kind of wrote about this in woke capitalism but is it something even more sinister that or is it just simply good positive marketing one tagline you also refer to which is uh which was in India called kindness is cashless which I think yeah I mean look bear in mind firms all the the digital payments firms have a massive agenda and trying to like shame me for using cash and they've tried all sorts of methods to do that right classic example in the UK the cash free and proud campaign by Visa where they basically came around 2016, 2017 or so. And they basically said, our objective is to make using cash feel peculiar by 2020 in London and in the UK, which they basically succeeded in doing, right? But that was their stated objective, was to basically make you feel weird for using cash. Right? And they have whole teams that do this. Bear in mind, because cash is a public utility, it doesn't have a marketing agency behind it. It doesn't have no. these <laughs> private sector players who basically specialize in, you know, promoting it well the royal uh, mint but maybe not massively <laughs> no but they're not even allowed to these players oh they? yeah they're, of course yeah, so yeah, like yeah the central yeah. banks have to be because they're under public mandates they have to pretend that they're neutral they're not allowed to even promote cash system whereas of course the part of the private state the banks they're like we don't care we're, you know visa and Moscow, we are we don't care we're gonna heavily invest into actively turning the public against the cash system so it's a very unfair playing field. But one of the things they do is also they'll try to associate digital payment with progressive modernism, right? So the sort of progressive, the aesthetics 
of diversity and progressiveness, right? And this is something that corporations do more generally. And this is, I guess, what Vivek was talking about as work yes, capitalism, yeah. right? Corporate and social trust- irresponsibility called it, whereby brands will post about politically salient and nice topics in order to shield for their uh, mistreatment of workers in the background. Somebody somebody like Vivek is going to have a reactionary political reason for making his critique, right? So I wouldn't trust him for a second about his (laughs) his critique. But basically what the firms will do is that, you know, these like, if we go back to our characterization of firms as like slightly inhuman entities that will just basically shapeshift to do whatever is like profitable for them. There's certain things they can always co-opt. Like firms can very easily co-opt environmental language. They can very easily co-opt identity politics language. The one thing they really struggle to co-opt is class politics language, right? They can sometimes sort of I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, well, their entire business model depends upon class exploitation, right? Whereas things like identity politics and environmentalism don't fundamentally necessarily endanger their basic model of operation. So if you're a firm, it's very easy to cloak yourself in the aesthetics of progressive politics, at least in the foreground. In the background, you're going to do hardcore conservative like union breaking and stuff like that, right? But in the foreground, you can like present yourself as progressive and so on. And what certain right-wing strategists have realized is that they can actually do a kind of divide and conquer move now because of that. This is what Vivek will be doing probably. They realize that in typical left-wing politics, you have the strange combination of the old sort of working class left who basically talk about capitalist exploitation. You then have the environmentalists. And environmentalists haven't always been left-wing. You find lots of conservative environmentalists, right? In the UK, like Brian May of Queen is an environmentalist, but he's also conservative, okay? He loves the badges. He's a whole tradition of conservative environmentalism, right? You also have identity politics, which is associated with a kind of like new form of like youth left culture, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not working class. It's middle class predominantly. Exactly. And and what the sort of new right-wing strategists have realized is that they can like hive off. They can try to associate left-wing culture with exclusively environmentalism and identity politics and then associate that with the quote-unquote woke capitalist firms who've been appropriating those memes as well. To make out that what left-wing culture is, is a bunch of like liberal elites who want to tell you that you can't eat meat and that what they represent is the working class family man who's trying to just make good by his family, right? And that's what they heavily trade upon, right? And they're managing to do this like kind of divide and conquer move, which they're very successful at. And this is what in my work around cash just affects me a lot, right? Because the digital payments firms, like all appropriating firms, have appropriated progressive aesthetics, so PayPal, all of them, they try to make out that like, oh, if you want to be modern and progressive, you have to be like with our, like, you know, our Apple Pay and all this kind of stuff, right? And then they also make out that cash is a realm of those sort of old men in the pub, okay? And players like Nigel Farage will play upon that because they'll be like, yes, our beer and our cash is like the represents the sort of like conservative working man. Well, right? he got debanked recently, which... And uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. regardless of where me, you sit on the political spectrum. Sure. But for me, it's interesting because I actually have a lot of people who are probably at one point in time would have been considered themselves labor left kind of people who've kind of been pushed into lots of kind of conservative thought more recently because of all the sort of new right wing strategies. Yeah. Well, okay. that's like the left left me rather than I left the left kind of thing, isn't it? This kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a lot of pro cash 
campaign that's coming out of that movement. So I'm always in an interesting position where I'm kind of skirting between a lot of different political perspectives. I quite like that, actually, because I like engaging with different types of people. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? it? Yeah. But it also means that people in the fintech industry, they've been like weaponizing that. They're trying to say that if you're pro-cash, you're some like conspiracy theorist from UKIP and you don't understand what's actually happening in the world and so on. And they've been very skillful at trying to get urban lefties to associate stuff like PayPal and stuff with being like progressive somehow, which is like a massive like cultural win mm. for, for all of these guys. What are the political implications of someone like Nigel Farage? But also, I'll give you some other examples for the listeners to provide balance. The owners of the Trigonometry podcast, the gender critical cartoonism podcast, Anina Paley, and then I'm sure there's many others I haven't mentioned, whose bank accounts have either been mysteriously shut down or their funding platforms have been deregistered, etc. You know, what are the wider implications of this and what you call the panopticon effect? Yeah, bear in mind, like, you know, cashless society, as I said, is like a society where you can't interact unless you go via the banking sector. And this, of course, grants a bunch of power to the banking sector, not only the banking sector, but the card companies and the big tech platforms, right? And that obviously gives them the ability to sort of like block accounts and stop payments. And right now on the political right, they're very, very obsessed with particular instances of things that they're concerned about, you know, like cancel culture. Yeah. yeah, but actually, historically, the main uses of this have been, for example, on like welfare recipients. Right now, for example, the UK is pushing through legislation that gives the DWP the right to spy on welfare recipients' bank accounts. The actual examples of the, the majority of examples of, of existing payment censorship and payment surveillance concern welfare recipients and people on the political right often don't care about. All right. So this is one of the things you've got to, you've got to be aware of with this debate is that there's many people who don't like the fact that the banking sector can be used to freeze accounts, but people will tend to curate the examples they find the most salient depending on their political orientation. So you'll find, for example, Farage. Farage is not going to be talking about welfare recipients having like financial censorship. He's going to be talking about, oh, you know, his free speech or like, I'm not allowed to buy like, a, you know, in future, my payments will be watched to see what my carbon score is. He'll, he'll take particular conservative concerns and then project them into the banking surveillance. Whereas the actual examples so far have vastly often have been, for example, Greenpeace has its accounts shut down by the Modi government in India. So this happens across the political spectrum. Yes, yeah. Right? This is actually why you can get cross-political agreement on this because actually people across the political spectrum can realize that once you don't have a cash system, you have far more power to censor people via the payments infrastructure to stop mm. them buying certain things, to stop them traveling to certain places and so on, right? And yeah, but there's lots of selective stuff. I would love to see Nigel Farage come out and be like, it's a travesty that welfare recipients get to be spied upon all the time. Uh, when he comes right. out of the jungle, we shall see, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before we reflect, the most disturbing part of your book, mate, is a theory that some macroeconomists have proposed, which could happen of something called negative interest rates, which they could say could be used as a weapon to force consumers to spend in the event of a financial crisis. Can you unpack that for me and how cash could be actually a bulwark against it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a... Uh... This is possibly one of those things that's like overblown in people who are concerned about cashless society. But there are macroeconomists like Kenneth Rogoff and Willem Beta who basically realize that, you know, they're technocrats. 
So like people who are like technocrats in the global capitalist system are basically, you know, you know, these like macroeconomists who try to study like what the effect of interest rate changes are and inflation and stuff. And they're basically like, if you want to get people to spend more, you got to lower interest rates. And that's a classic tool of the sort of macroeconomic technocrat who wants to try and boost the growth in an economy. They say like lower the interest rates to get people to spend more. But some of these guys have realized that that tool is getting less and less effective, right? Because you actually, for various technical reasons, you need to go below zero <laughs> for that to actually have an effect. And then they realize that the cash system, economist jargon, they call it the ELB, the effective lower bound, which basically means if you're holding a unit of cash in your hand, like a five quid note, somebody can't push a button somewhere and make it into four pounds 50, right? You can't like erode it through a negative rate, right? It will always hold this like lower bound of, of like a 0% interest. Whereas if you forced everybody to not use cash and forced them onto digital systems where you can edit their accounts, you could put negative interest rates. If you want to use a metaphor for this, it's like, you turn money into like a hot potato, but if you hold it too long, it starts to like burn up. So you people start to like chuck it around. You can accelerate spending by putting negative interest rates onto money. If you're a technocratic macroeconomist who the only thing you care about is how do you get people to speed up their spending, that is a very desirable thing for you. But bear in mind, in actual central banks and stuff, they have a whole bunch of separate agendas going on where they're like, well, we could do that. There's going to be massive public backlash to it, though, if we tried to do that. Also, people like Kenneth Rogoff and like Willem Beta, they put out these arguments like that. But whether a central banker would actually go along with those and face the like insane public backlash that would come as a result of it is a separate question. But in the back of their minds, they are thinking about the fact that if the public had to no longer have access to cash, certain types of macroeconomic tools would become available to them that previously weren't available to them. I'd love to get you on for a part two because there's so much else I could talk about, but let's reflect on your professional journey now. So first of all, what can people who are listening to this, who are maybe anxious about the move towards a cashless society, do to fight back or not cede their autonomy in your opinion? Because you described using cash as a meditative practice. Is that your uh, bohemian maybe uh, background coming back a little bit? <laughs> yeah, what's my romantic background? So I, I have a very strong romantic side. And I, I say that in the sort of true, like, political sense of the word, or sort of maybe cultural sense of the word. I don't mean like... <laughs> you buying flowers to your missus all the time. Yeah, I don't mean yeah, yeah. Hollywood romance, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't mean like box of chocolates romance. Yeah. I mean in the old school sense of like the romantic poets and stuff, right? Yeah. Which is like Keats, Byron. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you care about the feeling of society, right? You care about like the poetry. You're like a political society. empath. <laughs> Just, yeah, and, and actually, interestingly, like that impulse goes across political lines. It's a, almost like a different vector of politics. So you'll find people on both the political left and the right who have a romantic impulse, but also the opposite. You find very unromantic conservatives and very unromantic leftists. Yeah, yeah. It would be like the left technocrat and the right one nation Tory, maybe that sort of. Yeah. Thing. So actually yeah. the left right binary doesn't fully like capture sure. most of, yeah. like, so much stuff, right? The romantic unromantic binary, I find very interesting because I have a very strong like, romantic thing. And I actually believe that people, the physicality of cash and the dirtiness of like human life is actually really important. Right. So all the weird, Silicon Valley or like technocrat perspectives of like, oh, we want these like hygienic, efficient societies. I think it just basically makes people miserable, right? I think people actually hate perfection. People want 
a degree of imperfection in society, right? And so I'm, I'm very like a big defender of imperfection. That's one element why I'm stuff like pro-cash. If you want to get involved in like actually kind of pro-cash stuff, there's a bunch of stuff, right? Like it's, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I characterize cash as like the bicycle of payments or like mountain bike of payments. And actually part of the reason why I do that as a metaphor is that actually people in the sort of active transport movement, people who demanded pedestrianization or bicycle lanes actually had to form a political and a cultural movement right? It wasn't taken for granted that the bicycles would have power, right? You had to actually fight for it. So I think right now what we need is a political and cultural movement to say, actually, there's nothing regressive about using cash. There's nothing regressive about demanding a non-automated, non-corporate form of payment. It's totally actually forward-facing. And especially in a future characterized by climate change, digital burnout, all these things, it's totally acceptable to demand a slower analog thing and actually it's actually more like in a way it's more progressive more kind of progress orientated that's what i'm trying to help to build i'm not the only person there's a bunch of us bunch of people who are working to create a different narrative around non-digital payments so yeah people can get definitely get involved in many ways and regarding the book itself what did writing it teach you about yourself wow um well i mean writing it was a nightmare because we'll get to that a bit later but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah teach me about myself oh um i guess that i can eventually get through something even though it's a nightmare <laughs> i mean it's, it was like i crawled through it like a, a, was a, it like alan wake <laughs> just writing a book nightmares and everything it, it yeah. was it was really like it was really brutal i mean mm. it's like the thing about writing a book right is that like you, it's very very lonely because you're the only person who's kind of sort of semi knows where it's going and everyone else is just like waiting for it. You can't really explain stuff to people about what's happening in it until you've kind of finished, right? But that takes like a long time to actually finish it. So, so a lot of it's like, imagine you're like an albatross flying across the ocean and you kind of like get a third of the way through and it's like, oh, geez, I got, I got like a really long way to go still. And you get a halfway through and then it's like, okay, well, I'm too, it's too far to turn back now, but I'm already super exhausted. Now you're stuck in the middle, like out in the middle of the ocean and you're trying to like, and then the, actually it takes way, way longer to get to the shore, right? And then at time, everything is just like a oh, massive drag, right? Everything feels like exhausting and stuff. So that process is very transformational in a way because once you get through it, you're like, well, I actually did manage to do that. So I guess at some level, it kind of reinforced some self-belief in me. But it was, yeah, it also, you have to be quite humble because a lot of what happens in a book writing process is that you believe that all these things in your head, people care about them. And then you have like a brutal editor who's just like, just get <laughs> this rid is of crap. <laughs> Take this get, out. <laughs> get rid of it. Like a third of all of that stuff. It's yeah. like only interesting to you. And so, you, so it forces you to kind of grapple with your perception of what's important versus what the public thinks is important. Mm. And especially if you're writing for a popular publisher like me, I was writing for Penguin. So like they force you to actually think beyond yourself it's like why would a person who approaches this like like care about this particular thing right so that's was always the interesting thing to learn as well and as a final question before we move on what has been your proudest achievement on this professional journey from trader to activist and now author proudest achievement well, i mean you can say the book if you want if you want to plug it again but <laughs> I'm just trying to think what the, what that would be. Um, in some ways, I think like I maybe give a bit of a, like a 
obscure argument, but I think like my proudest achievement is actually kind of like getting over the idea that actually I could understand everything. For quite a while in my, in my like professional journey, I had this very sort of epic self story, which is like, I'm going to uncover the entire global finance and like hack the whole structure somehow and stuff. I've kind of like moved beyond that in a way. It's been like, actually, you know, like it's, it requires a lot of other people to actually understand this. You have to kind of like collaboratively understand it with many more people. Mm. Right. So that's actually, I'm kind of proud of. I've managed to move beyond the sort of like isolated vision of myself as some kind of like mm. solo hero. And that's actually quite nice. And actually like, so, so my new, I got a newsletter now called Altered States of Monetary Consciousness. And I write sort of like stuff there, which I don't assume that everybody will care about it. For some reason, I'm kind of proud of that. Oh, I like that. There's a very famous <laughs> MF Doom quote, which I always quote on this podcast, which is the more you know, the more you know, you don't know shit. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah. We've talked about Brett, the ex-trader, ex-activist, well, maybe still activist, and now author. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take me back to early life in South Africa, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Brett we meet here? Early mental health experiences. Well, I guess, yes, but I mean, not like something I would have a conscious conscious, uh, awareness of. I think I had like a pervasive anxiety. I think that's probably like my sort of pervasive feeling about my early life in South Africa was like an unacknowledged anxiety. Like did, that, like whole, did that pertain to the kind of hyper self-awareness of your own race in regards to apartheid? I wasn't really even self-aware. Bear in mind, like, okay. you just have, like, it was more like, imagine you got like a, like what are those, like a Geiger counter kind of thing. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like a radioactive thing that somehow I had like some nascent form of that. There was like something weird in my environment, but like it wasn't well-developed enough to have any actual like feeling of like what that was. So you were near right. Chernobyl, but you couldn't tell where Chernobyl was. <laughs> something, like, something like that. So like, I always had like, some like, slightly weird feeling like I was like, slightly like, anxious about my society. Or, like, I, didn't, I always felt I was about to be thrown out or something. So that's probably like, my pervasive like, mental health experience of growing up, like being this, this a constant feeling like I was... But that, of course, was normalized. So I thought it was just normal. That's like, how my life was. Like, looking back now, I was like, wow, it's kind of... I would probably describe it as being like, slightly more like, sensitive kind of person in a brutal environment where you're yeah. basically not allowed to be sensitive right and it creates basically a pervasive like feeling of like unease where like you like you feel like you should be able to say something but you can't so like a lot of like feeling of being like quite like sort of muted which is not the case necessarily now like it's, mm. now i'm very outspoken about things but that time that was um but yeah i also my whole world is very um animistic right so believing that like everything's like alive and that's partly comes out of OCD right so like I've got OCD it leads to like a at least my whole life the sort of sense that like everything in my environment is like all objects are kind of like alive in some kind of way again Um, coming back to the uh, anthropomorphizing of the banking industry you've anthropomorphized inanimate objects (laughs) yeah yeah animism in general is like Mm. sort of like belief that like the so I've always like had this sort of strange connection to like physical objects and things in my environment that like have sort of mystical powers and stuff You're like a um, jedi <laughs> everything has got a force <laughs> yeah i mean but it's also it's also like an ocd trait right like it's yeah it's a, like the sort of basically like the feeling like everything in your environment has some implication at the time 
when I was like young, that wasn't like a crisis per se. That was just like my reality. Because you felt it was normal as well. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I, I seem to have these sort of strange objects and I have, to, I have to do certain things with objects. And like if I walk past certain things, there's certain stuff that has to be done. And this like... Rituals, you know, we would call those. Lots yeah. of like rituals, but it also like manifests and it's quite sort of like... I was like very imagined, like very heavily in, like in my imagination, right? Because okay, so yeah, that's my South African like vibe when I was growing up. Mm. But, uh, so it's kind of a weirdo. <laughs> nah, everyone's weird at some point, mate. Oh, but mental health wise, like I mean, I don't know. It wasn't like that didn't necessarily manifest in like like extreme things, but you know, it was a difficult time in South Africa. Mm. It's a violent place. Divorces, my family, my parents, and stuff. I was like, there's lots of uh, darkness in the environment. Mm. Oh, I've spoken to many people who've got OCD, mate, and one of them is a mutual friend of ours, Hayden Prowse, and he talked yeah, about yeah. the repetitive rituals and he felt that when he did those in his head, they would ward off bad stuff happening. I think it's yeah, a common it's thing like, for OCD. It's, like, um, it's almost like superstition, actually. Yes, yeah. Did that give you a form of control then when the environment around you was pretty brutal as well? Yeah, I think so. Like, probably... Yeah, a lot of the OCD feeling is like forces beyond your control or strange things that can like penetrate you and like and, and so like this those ritualistic actions give you a sense of like agency of some sort even though they don't technically make any sense but they sort of like somehow make sense in your mind like if i do this thing some bad thing's not going to happen to me mm. right, so the warding off it's a very good phrase often you would use that it's like the warding off of, of imagined bad things through actions that seem so if you don't do them, you feel that this, the bad thing will come to you. I'm sure that can't be separated from my like life in a country where basically, like you, as a white person, you're you're living in a strange like enclave bubble world where mm. like your half of your environment is basically like not accessible, right? Have you ever read? Uh, there's a book by China Meville called The City in the City. No, I've not read it. A really amazing book where basically he talks about there's a city, but it's actually two cities superimposed over each other. And people are taught that either live in one of the cities or the other city, but like, but they're like literally the same place. But you, you learn as a kid, which is your city and which is not. And you have to constantly like unsee the other city. So like you're walking down a street and like one side of the street is your city and the other side is not your city. But you have to pretend that you don't see the other side. And like white South Africa is quite like that. You're basically living in a country where whole sections of it are like, you know, slums or like rural areas where there's like people living who basically will view you as being some kind of oppressive person. You don't, you're not going to go to those places, but you're constantly seeing them. So they're there, but they're not there. District 9 was a big analogy for that in the film itself, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is a big pervasive thing. So there's like some strange, and I'm, so I'm sure like my kind of like, probably can't separate that whole like lived experience from my kind of like strange OCD rituals and stuff around how do I maintain some sense of normality? I mean, I, I don't quite know, but like it's the OCD like shifts over time, right? It started, I used to do like a lot of like numbers, right? It's like say lots of numbers. I'd have to sort of say certain numbers to like feel okay. And then there's like ones where you like walk in particular patterns. Also, there's like strange shapes that have to move around in my head. There's like loads of different things that it's, it's manifest. I mean, you're smiling as you say them because you can laugh about it, but they are—they can be pretty controlling over your life, can't they? Yeah, yeah. But it also, yeah. if a person was watching me quite closely, they'd probably see it, right? Because I'd be like walking in like, let's say like a, a supermarket or something and I step over something, for example, like a coin or for example, like a chicken bone in the street. 
And then I'd be like, it's gone into me. The thing has like entered into me, right? Because I walked over it. And now I'm going to have to walk back and like reverse that process to get it out of me. How I would do that in a socially acceptable manner is like, yeah, I sort of pretend that I haven't, I've forgotten something or like I sort of turn mm. back and then I like look at my watch or something. You mask like, it. Yeah, yeah. I step, you know, like I try to tie my shoelace because what I'm actually trying to do is like get my foot <laughs> over something. Or something. There's like some of these weird actions you do to try and like mask the stuff and it's mm. always going on, right? But I, for a long time, I didn't even realize that it was kind of weird. A big <laughs> moment in your... Uh mental health journey mate was when you had a very severe breakdown now the trigger for it was a relationship breakdown in 2019 and you were writing the book at this point too hence why you alluded to this earlier in the pod so we're not going to talk about obviously the breakup itself but how did the end of it affect your OCD and and cause you to spiral in such a bad way yeah well actually the the relationship breakdown in 2019 wasn't necessarily like it didn't really have a direct impact on my okay. OCD. I had a big OCD breakdown last year, basically, uh, the beginning of last year. But in 2019, it was just like pure heartbreak. Sure. Like, yeah. like pure, like just heartbreak, depression in the midst of being suddenly getting a big book deal where it's like, oh, you're going to have to now write about the global monetary system and you better do it well. And you better not blow this deal because like I've been broke for like, I've been broke for like eight years. I needed to do it well. The right? irony of writing about money when you're broke is mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, if you're if you're making like a punk album or like a heavy metal album and you're heartbroken, maybe it'll help you. But like if you're trying to write clearly about the global monetary system <laughs> when you're like heartbroken, it's an absolute nightmare. Absolute terrible nightmare. Anyway, so like that was like 2019 and stuff. And then I actually handed the first draft in just as a pandemic hit. So that was like a strange thing because actually I suddenly felt a lot calmer just as everyone else was going into the sort of mode of like hysteria around the pandemic. And I was like, well, I've been in that state for the last year at least. So I'm. And COVID fueled a lot of the cashless moves as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, in a weird way, like the sort of like COVID hitting, I was like, well, you know, bring it on. I'm, I've already been through shit for like so long. <laughs> My actual breakdown in terms of like the proper mental health breakdown was actually after I finished the whole book and it was more like that moment where my system was like allowed to relax. You were on autopilot for that long and now it's come back to earth. Suddenly it was just like, boom, it was two months before the launch of my book. So like last year and it was almost like being like, okay, now the full vengeance of like, everything's going to like hit you. And there's also elements in, I don't know if it's like OCD, but like, where like if you believe that something good is going to happen, your system can generate some like attempt to derail it, like a kind of like... Like a uh, negative bulwark, basically. <laughs> yeah, like an anxiety that actually maybe you'll blow the big thing. And then with an OCD like looping, that can actually become like a really like hardcore sort of like breakdown. So just bear in mind, like if, if you think about superstition, think about something like when somebody says touch wood, like what's happening is that like they'll say like something like, oh, you know... Uh, I've never blown a, a job interview before, touch wood. So they, they, they make a positive statement and then they suddenly worry that it's going to awaken some dark force. <laughs> like a gin or a jinx, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, they're suddenly, suddenly that they've actually made themselves a target of something dark and negative and they have to now suddenly do something to protect themselves against that. So imagine I, I've spent like, you know, a bunch of years trying to make this book. It's, it's, it's a huge amount of work put into it. It's, it's also the cu- culmination of 10 years of like struggle and so on. 
and I'm like, boom, I'm suddenly like happy. I'm like, oh, cool, my book's about to come out. Yeah. And then suddenly there's just like this like dark feeling of just like some like dark force could just destroy this whole thing. Right. And then like suddenly you get in this sort of panic kind of like OCD ritual to try and like ward off that fear. And it creates this like insane sort of like looping and stuff. And mm-hmm. that's kind of like the breakdown I had last year was like a really bad OCD outbreak, which then triggered a bunch of like basically massive anxiety attacks, which then drain your system of all its energy. So you lapse into depression and pure burnout. I mean, I couldn't even like read emails. I was like, I mean, like literally I couldn't like process any information for about six months. You Um, spoke there about warding off. And, you know, at one point you were having psychotic episodes, which made you literally believe you were possessed. And that warding off, I think, as a almost like a spiritual element about spirits and stuff like that. So did yeah. your mind think it was spirits, the devil, something else? And, and why did it lead you to become interested in exploring the issue of psychosis more widely? Yeah, and I guess if once you're in those hardcore, like, spiraling loops of... Because, I mean, I, I guess, like, I wouldn't know how I described the breakdown last year. It was, it was kind of like a, it involved, like, OCD elements, but it also became, like, it's like a continuum of different things, right? There's no singular, you know, so you have, like, crazy anxiety, your system's, like, pumping out stress hormones. I mean, I don't know what's going on, but, like, you start to, like, basically lose a grip in reality. It's become doubting whether certain things are happening or not, and that's, I guess, psychosis type stuff. I'd be having, like, kind of quasi, like, sort of visions, you know, one of the things I did, I, I decided I'd try to go like on a road trip to try and like get myself out of it, which is a really, really bad idea. Cause it's <laughs> That's a bad idea, mate, yeah. <laughs> I went on like a six-day road trip by myself and it was like a, actually like a nightmare. It was really like fear and loathing. It was like I was just like in the desert of South Africa and I was just like tripping out. I was having like crazy visions and shit. So it was, it was like, yeah, it was, um, yeah. But, but what was kind of interesting about it is like, the only way you sort of survive that kind of stuff, in a sense, is to accept it, right? I actually, I have this Buddhist therapist. He's very cool, but he gave me this analogy. It's one of Aesop's fables of the oak tree and the reeds. I think it has different versions of the fable. But basically, it was like, there's a massive storm hits. And the oak tree's like, yeah, I'm really badass and big. And I'm going to be able to resist the storm. Whereas like you reeds are kind of like weak or something. And of course, the oak tree struggles all night. And then in the morning, it's been pushed down by the storm. And the reeds are all fine. And then the oak tree is like, how did you guys survive? You're so like thin and weak. And they're like, well, we just bent with the storm, right? And so that was a good metaphor for me because I was like in the midst of a full out like meltdown like I was. I had to basically just like go with it at some point. So I became quite interested and it's like, like, I feel like I'm possessed, right? Like what's going on here? Like it was quite like a shamanic experience actually. <laughs> anyways. And I'm, I'm guessing in like in our society, so-called shamanic experiences are kind of like, we talk about them now and probably in like these mental health kind of ways, but in many other societies, they'd be like, the person's going through some kind of like spiritual initiation or something. Or being exercised. <laughs> There's like different like modes of explaining these types of things, right? And so I was like, it was, yeah, pretty intense. I became a lot more interested in stuff like spirit possession and curses and these things, which historically, if you're, if you're an OCD person, this stuff is terrifying, right? Mm. Because a lot of OCD is about how do you maintain a sense of control and things like external malevolent entities that might undermine your sense of control is what you're trying to fight in a sense with the rituals or at least trying to ward off with the rituals, right? So I actually became like 
kind of interested and it's like wow I, like my rituals aren't working anymore so let me just like go with this and experience it right so that was a, in a weird way like a kind of positive <laughs> silver lining to the experience when you were in that period you said you spent five months where the world felt like pure darkness so how did you come out of that and start living in maybe not pure light but somewhere near pure light versus pure darkness before I don't know. I mean, it took quite some time, right? And I'm still, I'm actually, I'm not the same as I was before. Because a lot of the fear- We never are, mate. I guess the the real terror of like a proper breakdown is that you kind of scared you'll never return, right? And in some ways you don't. Like, so at the time I was like, oh, everything's going to like collapse. I don't know. I can't, I'll I'll be in this like state for the rest of time. And that way it actually resembles quite a lot like, you know, bad psychedelic trips and stuff where a person becomes convinced that they'll never return to their original state of being, which can be very, very terrifying, right? But this went on for a good six months. There wasn't really a specific end point. It kind of like, it sort of shifted and morphed. But yeah, like I I guess one of the things I started, I do a lot of metaphors in my life, right? I use metaphors for a lot of my work and I I had to develop lots of metaphors for myself. And one of them was like Stranger Things. The Um, Upside Down World. (laughs) The Upside Down, yeah. And I was like, I don't know who if if your listeners have watched Stranger Things, but it has like a mirror world where like a pure darkness, right? When I first watched Stranger Things, I was like, that world seems like depression. It's like the same as the other world, but it's all just like a darkness. So it's just like... Yeah, Alan Wake has that too. The dark place is the uh, metaphor in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember being like, one of the things that kind of helped me with my journey in a sense was like, the figure of Eleven in Stranger Things, where she's like able to like walk in the upside down and kind of like hold her nerve. So I started to like trying to imagine myself as being like, well, you're here in this like incredibly dark place and everything seems like nightmarish, but like try to slowly see little elements of light like breaking into it. That was a very important visual metaphor for me when I was in these types of very dark places. And I still sometimes like lapse into this, like go into these... um I'm not like out of the stuff, but I've become a lot better at being like okay with it, if that makes sense. And so, mm. so I start to imagine these hybrid worlds, which is like half the upside down and half like light, mm. right? So be like, I don't want to like strive to only be in the light, right? Uh, I want to kind of be okay with being in the dark. And that was quite a sort of Buddhisty sort of thing in some ways. That's the kind of practice I've been developing over time, which is to be like okay with being not okay. You also spoke about a very interesting metaphor off air, which was about flood walls and oh, yeah. <laughs> the OCD being the flood walls keeping the darkness at bay. So when something like OCD is your guardrail, what happens when the flood walls are broken? Yeah, the metaphor I actually use for it is to think of the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, like the Netherlands is a country, and I don't mean to insult any Dutch people here, but in some ways it's like, for me at least, the country equivalent of OCD because... <laughs> Whole sections of the Netherlands only exist. Well, there goes all my Dutch listeners. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's also an impressive place. But like whole sections of the country only exist because they have these dikes, that are the flood walls that they put mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. right? They reclaimed huge amounts of land by basically pushing the ocean back. But in reality, like there are sections of the, of the country that shouldn't exist in some ways, right? And they had to constantly maintain those flood walls. So there's all these stories about like, you know, yeah, like, like keeping the dikes up, right? Mm-hmm. And that maintenance of those flood walls is very much like what OCD rituals, for me, I experience them like, which is like, there's a wave of darkness. And if you don't 
protect via ritualistic actions, you'll be flooded. And actually the breakdown that I had last year was very much like those walls broke hard, right? And like no rituals mattered anymore. It's like, yeah, what are you going to do? You're going to do a ritual? Is it going to stop the flood somehow? It's like beyond that point. So in a weird way, it actually like reduced the power of the rituals. Mm. You saw what life was like when the flood walls broke. You yeah, saw well, reality. basically yeah. I was flooded, right? So like yeah. imagine the Netherlands gets flooded, right? And everyone ends up living on like boats or something or like rafts. Okay. And in a strange way, what it does is it releases you, right? Because it's like your landscape's been destroyed, but you no longer have this like need to protect the flood walls anymore because you're flooded. So in a strange way, there's a type of like release of tension. And that's kind of like maybe the state I'm in to some extent now. I mean, I still have the kind of like OCD like stuff, right? But it's Mm -hmm. not as like intense. Yeah. yeah, in a weird way, I'm like, well, I just broke, right? Yeah. And you got to work with that. And so in a strange way, it's made me kind of a bit more like blasé about things or a bit more kind of like relaxed, even though I can feel the sort of same tendencies going on. I'm less concerned about the implications of the breakdown. Let's put okay. it that way. So in summary, then, the flood overall was probably a bad thing because of how it affected your mental health. But you did take a positive out of it, unlike, say, Halo, where the flood is universally used as a metaphor for a virus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, at some point that breakdown would have happened. Sure. Way, yeah. You know, so at some point you, you kind of get used <clears throat> to the idea that like, because there's a lot of the grief that happens with these types of breakdowns, I guess, is like, you're grieving your lost life that you thought was okay, mm. right? And then there's all this kind of like, oh, but it shouldn't be like this. I got to reverse. I got to reverse back to something that I previously had. And at some point, you give up on that. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, mate. So, first of all, similar question as the first topic What has it taught you about yourself? Well, I mean, that's. Uh, <laughs> um, what has it taught me about myself? Uh, well, I mean, many things, I suppose. I don't know if it's taught me anything. It's more just like maybe a bit more accepting of myself. Mm-hmm. That's, that's probably a better way of saying it. I mean, I've, yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. I suppose I like I learned things, but I, like I, yeah, like accepting the lack of control is quite an important thing, right? Mm-hmm. To be like, actually, I don't control everything. There's loads of forces beyond my control. And that's like, okay, that's yeah. probably the main thing, which relates to that sort of previous stuff I was saying about like, being less concerned with being able to like, you know, decode the entire financial system or something or like, you know, understand everything in the world, which had that, that sort of more kind of heroic persona I used to have was at least partly like linked up to this kind of like control type of mentality. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a solo hero against the world and got to kind of like understand everything and stuff. So my letting go of that is also partly related to the kind of like mental health breakdowns mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, that's maybe the main thing. I could probably say something more profound, but that's kind of... Oh, I think that's good enough, mate. As a final question, before we move on, if you could go back and talk to the Brett who was wanting to explore the world a little bit more, the Brett who was dealing with the relationship breakup, or the Brett who was believing he was possessed in the depths of those psychotic episodes, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Um... I don't know. It's for the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be, I'd be like, I guess something kind of like a bit Buddhisty or something. It's like what I like in 
I mean, in some ways I'm, I'm like, I have a few different tendencies in myself. One of them is like a very like existentialist, like kind of dark existentialist tendency. I also have like a sort of like critical Marxisty kind of elements to myself, but I also have like this sort of romance stuff and like Buddhist elements to that. But like, it's a good one balance, of the, mate. <laughs> one of the things is like, there's not really a massive distinction all the time between there's nothing wrong with having cycles. Stuff is crap sometimes and stuff is like good other times, but there's no like single stable state, right? So don't hang on too much to like either of those states, right? And I think that's quite an important one for me and just for like lots of stuff, right? You know, if I'm sleeping badly or something, it's be like, you know, sometimes you sleep badly, sometimes you sleep fine. There's no single state that you end up in in this world. Sometimes I'm feeling crap, sometimes I'm feeling great. It's like, you know, well, fine, when you're feeling great, don't assume you're going to stay like that for the rest of time. You're going to also feel bad at some other point. So like just letting go of the idea of single states of being is quite an important thing, I would think, probably from my younger self. move to altered states. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what I tell my younger self is to be like, just like, be okay with the fact that you have different states of being and you don't, you don't need to always be in one of them. Our final topic of conversation, Brett, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. If we have time, it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I think it's actually kind of pretty good right now, actually. Again, it's like one of these things um, I have like... Uh, little dips and peaks and troughs yep such is life but, but yeah such is life like i'm mm-hmm. right now i'm okay i had like some anxiety attack a few weeks ago that was okay though i have daily like little mini ocd outbreaks but i just sort of let them be now <laughs> what yeah. age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind oh gee, i don't even know i mean Maybe, right now, <laughs> like maybe, maybe in my probably like, maybe in my late twenties or something. Okay, but like I mean, I don't, wouldn't know if I, I would say they weren't physical. I, I kind of experienced my thing as quite physical ways. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, I don't know if I would say I didn't experience it with not being physical. But, uh, okay, yeah. Sort of for me, it's been like more like a slow emergent thing because if you if you're like um, especially stuff like OCD, I would just assume, I, I just assumed it was normal. For a long mm. time. I, I sort of knew that it wasn't, but I also kind of like didn't know that it wasn't, right? So um, it took me quite a long time to even like admit that it was a thing. And can you remember the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who is it with? What did you say? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted or something quite easy and normal to do? Uh, probably quite like late, actually. Bear in mind, like South Africa is not a place where you can talk about that kind of stuff very easily, especially in the environment I was growing up in. There was no real resources for that kind of thing at all. Nobody spoke about mental health in South Africa, at least in white South Africa. Actually, it was expected that you just like not say anything about anything, really. So nothing from my like background. And probably only more in, more in recent years, actually. Probably only really started talking about it properly with when I got like this therapist. And that was only in the last like, you know, like probably like four or five years ago. Mm, okay. Um, so... I mean, I would sort of tangentially speak about it. I would speak about emotions, but not about like mental health per yeah. se, right? Mm. So, And you've spoken about your OCD ritual. So outside of them or including them, what things do you find that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, or have you not yeah. figured all of them out yet? Yeah, for me, like quite a lot of the sort of OCD stuff, some of the triggers of things are like public figures or like weird like, figures that I find disconcerting, especially like certain men. 
like aggressive man that's like one of the big things that's like i have a long history of like pitching myself against like aggressive kind of like sort of bully type people right and so there's lots of these disconcerting figures that are like i really like trigger me heavily it's one of the reasons why i'm also like it's hard to describe this but like um for a very very long time from like growing up i always assumed that like women were better than men oh wow yeah it's always been a baseline assumption of mine which is strange because people often think that somehow like guys think that guys are best i have had always had the opposite right i have like an inherent distrust of like probably comes from being like in an aggressive violent environment growing up not necessarily my family but like just in the general environment yeah, yeah. where you associate this with all these kind of aggressive men so I have an inherently suspicious attitude towards like aggressive men. So that's sometimes the thing that really like affects me the most when I'm like triggers me into sort of mental health spins and stuff. I take it rugby wasn't for you then, mate. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was forced to play rugby. Oh, well. I was actually not, I was kind of good at rugby, but like, you know, I managed to pass as being yes. like, like kind of like a, I was never like bullied per se. I was, yeah. I was able to sort of like make out like I was sort of, like when i go to south africa and i'm in some of those real conservative parts of like mm. male culture people can people know that i'm not the same Fair. It stands out yeah. and conversely what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or feel better which ones have worked and which ones that you've tried but haven't yeah i mean exercise very big although right now i'm slightly injured so that's and i can tell when i'm slightly injured i've got like my elbow and my heel I'm doing too much rock climbing um <laughs> so like you know i could immediately tell like when i have like downturns and exercise it affects my mental health but playing guitar i play lots of music very important for me it's a very core part of how i keep balance so singing dancing i was sort of doing meditation for a bit i find i struggle to like keep a like a, a routine with meditation i go through phases of trying to do it i guess my more meditative stuff comes from like going to the gym and the sauna and or like playing music <laughs> nothing like a sauna to make you think about nothing else <laughs> yeah exactly right so that's those kind of things and then and then of course all the sort of tools of trying to like let go of trying to control stuff too much probably my main thing right which is just like let it be you know when i have like a weird strange like fixation that develops my mind in a loop i just like well it's gonna happen just let it be when i'm having an anxiety attack i'm just like well this is happening now just carry just put, on just put on some paul mccartney and wings <laughs> just like, let it look, be your body is pumping out a bunch of like whatever it's pumping out that's making you feel like mm. everything's like imploding in the world it's just it's okay mm. <laughs> that's the only thing you can do really what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related doesn't exclusively have to be and if you can't think of a book an album tv show any piece of popular culture Oh. Um, I really like A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Wow, niche. Tell me more about it. Well, you know, Ursula Le Guin's a very impressive fantasy and sci-fi writer. People who know Ursula Le Guin are really into Ursula Le Guin. She's probably most well-known for like sci-fi books, but she has like, this incredible fantasy series called the Earthsea series. Ursula Le Guin also, she was very into like Taoism. So... A Wizard of Earthsea is based on Taoist philosophy and it's about wizards, but it's also, it's about like 
this guy who has to um the wizard who has to like face his shadow his shadow gets like ripped out of him and it starts to haunt him and like hunt him down across the world <laughs> that sounds like he's, a horror film <laughs> he's constantly like running from it but in the end he has to like embrace it just go and absorb into it yeah it's an amazing book it's an mm. amazing book but the whole series is amazing so i'd say actually it was a diversity was very important okay. to me. cool uh, fantasy mm. version of this stuff well speaking of uh Taoist philosophies if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why a mantra probably should have prepared for this before <laughs> like let it be <laughs> yeah sometimes uh i mean now right now the mantra that i actually use is uh let it flutter Right. Because because like you'll have these like thoughts fluttering, right? So I'm just like, let it flutter. Okay. <laughs> That's not all, always the, the one that I use. Yeah. Probably something like, yeah, anything that has a kind of like, sometimes this is the case, sometimes it's not the case. Right. So these types of like, I'm not giving you the best quote, right? But like, <laughs> uh, sometimes you're good, sometimes you're bad. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Got two questions left. The first one is, <laughs> what do you love about yourself? Um... At some level, I'm quite like a sort of, I, lo- I love that. I'm quite weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah weird is good. Le- at, at some level, like actually kind of like a little bit light, despite the sort of appearance of like darkness often. I like you that. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And as a final question, mate, this is a broad one. You can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly, they want to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what like we necessarily have to do. I don't know who the we is necessarily. Society. You know, having having mentioned earlier that at some level, I've always had an inherent suspicion of male culture. I have actually enjoyed recently in recent years, actually like speaking to other guys about mental health stuff. I do think that some of the kind of like men's group kind of things can be useful people when they get guys together to discuss stuff and that often requires explicit permission to say it's okay to actually you have permission to let down defenses of some Mm -hmm. sort trust is big Um, for us in disclosure yeah because bear in mind and you know in male culture there's lots of risk inherent in opening up right especially in places like south africa one of the reasons why there's such a defensive aggressive male culture is that actually you expose yourself to risk if you're open Mm-hmm. so people lapse into this defensive kind of like aggression um, and you can feel it and very heavily in the environment and most men don't feel like they have the ability to let go of those defenses right so because the risk is too high the yeah. risk is too high yeah it's also there's lots of privilege as well in like being able to let go of defenses right this is why you're, you know there's for many groups they don't feel like they have the option to do it so yeah creating those spaces where you somehow create the permission and also the safety required to allow a person, you know, to express that. I think about my dad's generation. We were very heavily involved in like quite hardcore stuff in Mm. Southern Africa. For a lot of those guys, there's no resources whatsoever for them to like talk about that kind of stuff, right? So Mm. I'm not really answering your question perfectly, but yes, anything that involves like probably guys being able to help each other at some level to talk about these things i actually have some male friends now who are quite cool we actually do speak about this stuff so there is definitely some progress being made in some parts of the world where you Mm. can actually like get together and speak yeah we've got a long way to go on that note 
Brett, thank you so much for putting so much of your time aside to chat to me. And thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for on this bumper edition of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Brett for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I will, of course, put a link to where you can buy a copy of Cloud Money, subscribe to his Substack, and follow him on social media in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, I'll sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, you can go to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash VentHelpUK. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs> <laughs>